I'm on already? Oh, way too soon. But we're good. Here we go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your holy, redemptive history. We thank you for your providential hand and having it recorded for us. Believers in Jesus, upon whom the end of the ages have come. And so may we see your mighty works this morning in the past and right now in our lives to the glory, the exaltation of your holy name, to the experience of your deep, tender, personal love for all who love your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. About 3,400 years ago, a people called Israel were delivered out of slavery in Egypt by the Egyptians. They were set free. And they were set free by the creator of the universe who did it publicly and miraculously. And that's what we're looking at this morning. But as we go to it and contemplate the exodus, the exit out of Egypt, the coming out, the title of the second book of the Bible, I want this question to hang over our hearts and over our minds. Have you experienced your own personal exodus out of bondage to sin? Has the same God who opened up the Red Sea and delivered the children of Israel and then closed it, drowning the enemies of Israel, has that same God delivered you out of your bondage to darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of light? If you say, yes, that's me, you've come out of the Red Sea, but you're not in the promised land yet during this life. You're in the wilderness. You haven't crossed the Jordan into Canaan. That will come when you die. Or really, the consummation of the kingdom will really come one day when Jesus returns and raises you from the dead. But, having been delivered out of Egypt, are you continuing now in that wilderness to be a Joshua and a Caleb and a Moses by trusting in the promises of the Lord? By loving the God who delivered you with ten horrific plagues upon the Egyptians and opened the sea and drowned your enemy. 
Satan snapped his neck. As we go to it this morning, go back into history 3,400 years ago, find hope. Find hope in this actual historical event. So here we are. This is week 16 in the series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. So just a a, a few-minute recap, okay, where we've been for the previous 15 weeks. We have seen that God created everything for His glory. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The reason God created anything and then the pinnacle of His creation, humanity, was for the placarding, extending of His eternal glory outward in and then we saw in the Garden of Eden our representatives fell into sin. And the book of Romans summarizes Genesis 3 this way. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which means from the garden on to everyone sitting in this room, by our very nature, we are prone to seek our own glory and not God's. We are bent on self-reliance, self-exaltation, rather than God-reliance. And from that very root, deep down in the heart of each man and woman, boy and girl, flows all the manifestations and actions of sin. Since the fall, the very nature of humanity and every human being has been corrupted, and apart from the renewing of the Holy Spirit, we spurn God, even in a religious manner, whether a pagan or in religiosity, whether within Islam or Judaism or Christianity, apart from new birth, we are spurning the glory of God in all that we do. As Paul summarizes it in Romans chapter 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise, they, that is we, all became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. But God, we have seen then, with this ongoing goal of upholding 
His glory and saving sinners from their sin and from judgment that He would bring upon them, He has taken steps to do it. And we have seen, therefore, He chose one man. Abraham. And He made astonishing promises that God Himself bound Himself to. I will bless you, Abraham. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And in you, from you, through you, all the nations and Gentiles and families of the earth will be blessed. And I will establish My covenant between Me and you, Abraham, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And we saw that there was an amazing transaction between God and Abraham. When God would give him a command, go, he saw that's faith because Abraham went. When Abraham believed the promise that from his barren wife in his old body he would have children as numerous as the stars of heaven, the text says, and Abraham believed Yahweh, the Lord. And it was imputed to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. We saw this transaction that the God of the universe, the just God, the God who is filled with perfect holy judgment and wrath, said to Abraham, to your account before the legal bar of God, you are righteous credited to your account. Amazing. Your sins, in other words, are wiped away before the judicial bar of heaven. And that very faith that Abraham had as it grew one day when God says, take your only son, your 13-year-old boy, and kill him. On an altar. He didn't hesitate. And of course, God wouldn't have that. He was demonstrating the depths of what was going on on the inside of Abraham's heart. And then the New Testament picks up on Abraham's faith and makes his faith the model of the faith of all Christians on this side of the cross. The faith that looks to the God who promises righteousness, eternal life, blessings. Turn away from worldliness and sin and trust me through my Son. And it says, just like 
Abraham, meaning if any of us today bank our hope for security and for real, eternal, unending happiness in Him, then righteousness is reckoned to us. Our sins are forgiven. And God then, though we are sinners, will pursue us with goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. We stand justified. We stand clean and free, like Abraham, before the judge of the universe. And all the gifts that then flow out of that justification, like sanctification, the rest of our lives, the promise of final glorification in the resurrection of the body, all of it was purchased by Jesus Christ. In His true humanity, in His death as a substitute, in His resurrection as our triumph. The cross purchased Abraham's redemption. Even though Abraham lived about 1,800 years before Jesus ever came through the womb of Mary. It was only through Christ that Almighty God could reckon righteousness to Him. And the same for us who never came into existence but 2,000 years after the Christ event. Same thing. It was Him, Jesus, who purchased our redemption. And the faith is the same. The, the, the difference of content is this. On this side of the cross, we look back and the mystery is unveiled. How could you forgive me? How could you give to me such unimaginable promises of the future? That's how we look back. That's the cross. Okay, We have that. And, and that's why our faith will always be tied to that story now. But Abraham didn't. He didn't know anything about Jesus. But he was saved by faith. That part was still a mystery. How in the world could I be forgiven of my sins? And he left that into the mysteries of God. And he trusted Him. That's where we've been for the last 15 weeks. And you turn the page. <laughs> and we come to the Exodus. But I want to jump further for a moment to Christ after Abraham. Because when God chose Abraham, there was about 1,800 years long time for humans. 1,800 years of history before He sent His Son. Why? And for that 1,800 years, God dealt almost exclusively with one small people group. 
We know other people groups. We know the Egyptians and Mesopotamians and Assyrians and the Greeks. and We know a whole lot of other peoples. And he essentially left them alone and dealt with one small family. Israel. So why? Why did he wait all that time before he sent his son? And limit his redemptive interactions with a tiny segment of humanity called Israel for almost 2,000 years. The way the New Testament answers that question is the reason he did it is because that long history of Israel was necessary in order to make some things very plain to the world that then will set the backdrop of the message of Jesus Christ as the Savior of all who will have Him. He did it in order to enable us to grasp more fully the meaning of the incarnation of Christ. So that when John the Baptist down by the Jordan one day will be able to say to his disciples, there he goes. The Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. That was not some empty word spoken in a vacuum. It was filled with content and meaning and backdrop. And then to go and to preach Christ and say, believe and you will be made right with God. Your sins will be wiped out. And not only that, you will stand perfectly justified before Him. Like Abraham, when Christ comes to be the substitutionary sacrifice, it's not in a vacuum. It's filled with meaning from the history of Israel. The events of Israel's history are treated then when we come into the Christ event as types Shadows pointing to the fulfillment who is Christ Himself. So that the Apostle Paul himself says this to, and he's a Jew, but predominantly to Gentile believers in Corinth chapter 10. After reciting a bunch of the history of Israel, some really bad history. He says, now these things happened. They did. They really did happen. These things happened to them as an example. But then they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages he so believed that. So when he's writing a, at a very different time, his magnum opus theology, in chapter 15 of Romans, he says to them, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we Christians might have hope. 
And so that's why, for example, in Romans 3, verse 19, Paul says this, using the book. Now we know that whatever the law, we haven't gotten there yet, we'll get there next couple weeks, but whatever the law of Moses says, it speaks to those who are under the law, the Jews, so that, here's his purpose now, listen to it. Why? So that, not just the Jews' mouth, but so that every mouth may be stopped. And that the whole world, not just Israel, but that the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, in God's dealing with Israel all those years, He always had also, very clearly and deliberately, the whole world in view. Every tribe, every people, every tongue, every nation. What he was doing was making Israel an example. And the history of Israel, which is recorded in what we call our Old Testament, it is the lesson book for all the nations as the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth. And therefore, when we read the history of Israel, we should always be asking the question along with in its, as some of you might like this, its situation in life in which it's happening right then. You've got to understand that. But you're always looking long term, therefore, according to Scripture, to God did have me also if I'm a Gentile believer or if I'm a Jewish Christian. He always had me in line. He always had Christ in mind. So, how? What is He doing there? How is that relevant to me in this event or that event? And so that's the question we ought to keep in mind as we consider the history of Israel. So we start today, most specifically, just with this, the Exodus. God delivering His people, Israel, out of slavery in, in Egypt to be free from them. Now, when we get to the Exodus, we left off with Abraham. The history for most of you should be very clear. If it's not, this is one of the first things a Christian should know in the first couple months. Abraham had a son after the promise. Isaac. The promise goes to his son Isaac, not to his son Ishmael. It's Abraham, it's Isaac, and then it's Jacob. It's not his son Esau. He chose Jacob the younger over his older brother Esau. That is, God did. And then Jacob, after wrestling with God, had his name changed to the one who wrestles with God, otherwise known as Israel. So we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And Israel has 12 sons. And those sons 
marry and have a family tree. And each of those trees we refer to as the 12 tribes of Israel. And by the end of the book of Genesis, one of those sons, Joseph, becomes, under God's providence, the second in command of all of Egypt. And he brings his father, Jacob, or Israel, and all of his brothers and their families to Egypt. And the book closes. And a hundred years go by. And then 200, 300. And then a king, a pharaoh, arises getting nervous because those Hebrew people who are not Egyptians living over in Goshen are becoming very numerous. And it scared them. And we need to subjugate them now before they get too big and put them into slavery. And it was a brutal, abusive slavery. Now you flip the page from Genesis and you're into the second book of Moses. Just briefly, those first five books of the Bible, if you want to use the very technical term the way a, a Jew today would even say it in Hebrew, that's the Torah. In its most precise meaning, meaning Moses' books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, in Deuteronomy. Torah means law. And then we get the Greek word coming down later, Pentateuch, those five books of Moses. And so you open up to Exodus and what you have now over 400 years after the close of Genesis, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel in slavery begin to cry out. For deliverance. And God sends Moses. And Aaron, because Moses is so timid to help him. So today then, this is the question, and only one question, I want to focus on. Why did God deliver them? Why did he deliver that people? Before that, during that, and ever since after that, there have been tribes, nations, people groups in horrific situations that would have been great if they got delivered. Why did he deliver Israel? In other words, what was God's motivation to do it? What was His motivation to pick Moses? What was His motivation to not have three plagues upon the Egyptians, but ten before the people would be set free? What was God up to? Now, the answer is at least, I just want to concentrate on those three that are very clear. Not three reasons, but one large reason that is altogether has three distinct but connected parts to it. In other words, think about it like a, a tree. A tree has roots that are under the ground and that's where it's getting all of its life and sucking the moisture and the nutrients 
from the soil. That's what gives life. You kill the root, the tree is dead. But from that, because of that root, there grows up a trunk. The second motivation. And from that trunk, and only from the trunk, grows out the branches. And so, what is the root that ended up delivering Israel from slavery? Well, it's what we have been hearing throughout this series. And it's stated clearly in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. The root reason why God delivered them was in order to magnify His own glory, His name. Quote, But for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, in order to show you My power, so that My name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's the root. From that root grows the trunk of God's commitment to fulfill His oath or promises. He led the people out of Egypt. This is second Distinct reason that's connected in the whole tree. He led them out of Egypt because He promised Abraham that He would do so with His descendants. A covenant. And then from that trunk, which grows out of that root, there are the branches. And the branches are the blessings that those actual persons experience from God. Deliverance. And they experience it as God's love. His chesed. His loving kindness to them. And it's huge. Trees don't work the other way. You don't start with branches hanging in midair. And from the branches grew a trunk down to the ground. And then finally underneath that, there is this root. It works from the bottom up. It's hugely important. Because that progression is not just true of the Exodus, it is true of the whole Bible. So this progression of motive and grasping the root is God is God. He's needless. He created for a reason to go outward with His Godness. To extend the beauty and the satisfaction that He is with the creature. And that's why He went to Abraham. And I'm making you a promise. And therefore, He will never lie. He will fill that promise. And that's why you are saved from Egypt. Or saved through my Son. Jesus.
Christ. If you say, I don't really, who cares which comes first? You ought to, because a lot of people don't today. And they turn, they still use the name Jesus, they still say he's Satan, and all that kind of stuff. And they, this is because they're not concerned about the progression. That's why they preach the way they do. I know what will catch them. Just look at the PBS hour specials of a motivational speaker. Look at TED lectures. That'll work. People want to feel they're the center. So tell them, get saved. Jesus is awesome. Don't you see how you're the root? He looked down and saw how beautiful and good. You're so valuable. Of course He had to send Jesus to get you. Really? It's a perversion of the Gospel. And it bears fruit down the road in those persons' lives and those churches' lives. But you compare that with how often we hear what motivates God in the Holy Scripture. It's the value of His glory, of His zeal to display that glory his greatness to the world. And yet, when you get it, it is precisely that root that sustains the trunk. God will hold his promises. And from that trunk are we, the branches, experiencing God's very real, tender, so, God's fatherly care and love, as Jesus told us about, it flows from the trunk of His commitment to uphold His promises, particularly that He gave to Abraham. And that promise given to Abraham was rooted in His purpose to glorify His name for all eternity. So, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy then. And let's, let's see these three motives, the, tr the root and the trunk and the branches right there in the Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. And so that you get this, this, it was 40 years ago essentially now, when this happens, 40 years ago the exodus happened. They've been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And now Moses looks back 40 years to the exodus and says why God did it. For you are a people holy or set apart and holy to the Lord your God. Yahweh, your God, has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, He chose you. Why? It was 
not because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Then why? It was because the Lord loves you. The branch. Your branches. It was because the Lord loves you. Oh, and the branches flow out of the trunk. And it's because the Lord is keeping the oath, the promise that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you. That's the reason the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why? Don't, it's the branch and it's precious. It is because He loved you. Why did He love me? He loved you. No, no. Why did He love us, Israel? Because He loved you. That's the answer. See, before that, He makes it clear. It was not because of anything else. He has mercy. Loving mercy upon whom He has mercy. He purposes, in other words, to do good to you. He has your best interest at heart. That's His love. That's why He brought you out of slavery. That's why He delivered you from Pharaoh. But right there also, in verse 8, along with His love is the trunk. It is because, not just the branches He loves you, it's because He is keeping His promise that He made. His oath that He swore to your fathers. Like the oath He swore to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13-14. Know for certain, Abraham, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, Egypt. And they will be slaves there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. God promised He would do it. And so the integrity of His name is at stake in the success of the Exodus. His commitment to keep His word brings freedom from slavery to Israel, which brings His loving mercy to them. Those two reasons are why God 
delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt. But underneath those two reasons, there's something deeper. It's the root. The prophet Isaiah would later refer to this root numerous times. Like in Isaiah 43, the Lord says through Isaiah, I created Israel for my glory. In Isaiah 43, 21, the Lord declares, I formed this people for Myself so that they might declare My praise. So that the creature through them would praise Me. In Isaiah 46, 13, I will put salvation in Zion for Israel who is my glory. And Isaiah 12, 60, verse 21, Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. That's the root. Israel exists most basically and foundationally for the glory of God. Both that Israel may know that and worship Him who is worshipful, and also from that that all the world will ultimately see how great He is. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 10. And so notice the progression first. The first is that Israel herself will respond in how great thou art. Chapter 10 of Exodus, starting with verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh. Listen to this. Go into Pharaoh because I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. I did it for a reason. Here's his reason. Here's his goal. So that... I may show these signs of mine among them. Okay, first notice it. Be clear. God did not want Pharaoh to let Israel go after Moses went in the first time. He didn't want it. He made sure of it. He hardened his heart. He didn't want Israel to be let go after the sixth plague. He wanted more plagues first. So he hardened his heart. And he finally wanted the tenth death to all the firstborn. 
except those who take the blood of the Lamb and put it on the doorpost that night. He wanted that to happen because He wanted the Seder to be celebrated, the Passover to be celebrated for thousands of years. Do not forget the ten plagues in my deliverance by a miraculous, mighty hand so that I may show these signs of mine among them. And he goes on, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson and of your great, 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 great grandchildren through the Passover that I will institute. That you will tell how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them so that you may know that I am Yahweh. That's why He did it. That's why He did it with ten plagues and not four. That's why He hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he can get to all ten plagues. So Israel will know how great the Lord is. But not only Israel, it's not all that he had in view in the text of Moses. But God also purposed in his judgment to wake up the Egyptians as judgment would fall. In Exodus chapter 14, God leads the people in the escape. Okay, let them go. And he leads them to what would look like they're utterly now trapped. And he does it on purpose. Look at chapter 14 of Exodus, verses 3 to 4. Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. They're trapped. And listen now. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and over his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Excuse me. And the Egyptians, in verse 18, shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So God's purpose in delivering Israel, the way that He did it, was beyond just Israel. It was to show the Egyptians His glory. And more than that, it's not just for Israel and for the Egyptians, but He did it for all the world. Chapter 9 of Exodus, verse 15 and 16, God says to Pharaoh, For by now, Pharaoh, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But I didn't. And I have my reasons. 
But for this purpose, I raised you up in order to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This great historical event of the Exodus was not done in a corner. It was done for all the world to ultimately see. And for many to have the sight of that reality break their hearts, cause them to melt before the great and scary and just God of Israel. And some to therefore surrender their hearts to Him and become branches. And so when you flip over to the very next book, after Moses' books. We get an example of that just 40 years after the Exodus. There was a prostitute, a woman who made her living by selling her body. But she came to saving faith. New Testament lets us notice clearly that Rahab, the prostitute, Believed. Believed what? Something came to her about what God had done. About His mighty outstretched arm in delivering Israel. In her own words, this is how she said it in chapter 2 of Joshua 9-10. I know that Yahweh has given you Israelites the land... Remember, she's in Jericho, the city of Jericho with walls, given you the land, and I know that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. She believed. She helped them, the spies that came to them, and the doorway was opened to possess the land of Canaan. Because the reputation of the Lord and His power and His glory went ahead of Him, even reaching inside the walls of Jericho. And so as we sit here today, 3,400 years after this historical event, declaring the same glorious God, the same one who visited us, became one of us in the incarnation where He Himself would show His glory keeping His promise to David and thus His tender love in laying down His life, we, all these years later, look back at the Exodus just as God intended. This is our great God and our Father 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. God can not only turn the Nile River to blood or open up the Red Sea, but as we sit here today, and those of us who find ourselves captivated by this God, who find ourselves loving this God of the Exodus, as we hear it, it is a sign that I am of the faith of Abraham. It's a sign that I have the faith of that prostitute, Rahab. It's a sign, and this is how Paul will put it in Romans. It's a sign that even though I, a non-Jew, have been grafted into the branches. I have become, and the only way to get saved is to become a seed, a descendant, a child of Abraham. And so that means if that's us, we can each, in our own particular experiences, talk about our own personal exodus. Which the historical exodus that absolutely happened was also meant to be a metaphor for this deeper and greater deliverance of our souls from future perdition at Judgment Day into everlasting, eternal life that Jesus came to grant to us. We can look back and say, He delivered me out of slavery. So far worse than just mere slavery to the Egyptians. Slavery to sin. Slavery to the wrath of God that hung over and He delivered me into the kingdom of His light. I see into the kingdom of His precious and wonderful and glorious Son. The God who kept His promise to Abraham and delivered Israel is our God and our Father because of, through, and in the name of His eternal Son. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your indescribable gift. Thank you for your holy scripture, for your redemptive history, for the rhyme and the reason that is there. Oh, may we constantly be attentive to Your ways and the order in which You order them. Because there is where our heart rests most securely. Though we become faithless, it is impossible for You to ever deny Yourself. 
And that's our hope. That's why we know when we confess our sins, you're faithful and you are righteous to your covenants to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know that for the sake of your name, you forgive us our sins today and tomorrow. We know it's for the sake of your name that you who began a good work in us through new birth and that first spark of saving faith will absolutely lose none of us. But we, by your hand and for your name's sake, will be preserved to the end. To the glory of your name, thank you, Father. Amen.